It's the North Shore Vineyard Church audio podcast. I'm Crispin Schroeder. Today on the podcast, we are going to be looking at the subversive ministry of Christ Jesus. We're looking at a passage where Jesus actually offends people so much that they plot to kill him. And we're going to consider how in light of his followers, of being his followers, how if we follow the ways of Jesus, how it will many times put us at odds with the world, but yet how it is the way that Christ overthrows the powers of darkness of our world. You can stay up to date with all the things we're doing this summer by visiting us at northshorevineyard.org. But for now, let's go ahead and head to the talk. North Shore Vineyard Church in downtown Covington. Thanks for listening. this is your first time here, we're, we've been going through the Gospel of John for quite some time now. We're up to part 41. I realized last weekend I printed the same outline as the weekend before, and it didn't, I didn't catch that till the end. So there's an outline y'all missed last week, but it was really good too. It was my best work on an outline. <laughs> it's a shame. So I almost printed that one up this week uh, just to show you how good it was, but Alas, we will we'll go into the passage today. Could, could we turn down my mic just a hair? It sounds like it's about to feedback. Okay. Um, what we've been talking about the last two weeks was, is, was the, the raising from the dead of Lazarus. Still getting a little rain there. A little rain. Okay. Um, Lazarus was a good friend of Jesus. Lazarus, Mary, and Martha, they were uh, Jesus' buds over in a little town called... Bethany, and uh, Jesus loved hanging out with him. He gets news that his friend Lazarus is dying, and he, he does something that seems kind of odd to the people that are gathered around him. He, he delays going to be with his friend. Now, one of the reasons that, that it was kind of a weird situation was that Lazarus lived about two miles outside of Jerusalem, and people in Jerusalem at this point, there were people who wanted to kill Jesus. They'd actually tried to. They'd picked up stones to stone him last time he was in Jerusalem. But Jesus puts off going over there for a couple of days, and by the time he gets there, we find out that Lazarus has already been dead for four days. He's wrapped up in burial clothes, put in a tomb, and Jesus miraculously raises him from the dead. Now, unlike many of the other miracles of Jesus, Jesus has this way of doing miracles many times. This is kind of a weird thing. I don't know, I don't know why he does this, but there's several places where he'll heal somebody. He's like, don't tell anybody about it. Just kind of weird. Like if you've had leprosy your whole life and don't tell anybody. <laughs> uh, or you've been blind, don't tell anybody. And, and so Jesus would do a lot of miracles kind of in a hidden way. And, you know, he wouldn't try to publicize it. You know, he wasn't televangelist or anything. But the raising of the dead of Lazarus is a very public miracle because there were all kinds of people who were gathered there to mourn. People had come from Jerusalem, uh, from all over. So when Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead, it, there's a big crowd there. And, 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 all the, and lots of these people go back to Jerusalem, and they begin kind of talking about Jesus. And so that brings us up to the passage today. And so we're going to be looking at John chapter 11, verses 47 through 57. So I'll read those right now. 
Then the chief priests and the Pharisees called a meeting of the Sanhedrin. What are we accomplishing, they asked. Here is this man performing many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And then the Romans will come and take away both our temple and our nation. Then one of them named Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year, spoke up. You know nothing at all. You do not realize that it is better for you that one man die for the people than that the whole nation perish. He did not say this on his own, but as high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the Jewish nation. And not only for the nation, but also for the scattered children of God to bring them together and make them as one. So from that day on, they plotted to take his life. Therefore, Jesus no longer moved about publicly among the people of Judea. Instead, he withdrew to a region near the wilderness, to a village called Ephraim, where he stayed with his disciples. When it was almost Passover time, many, when it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, many went up from the country of, to Jerusalem for their ceremonial cleansing before Passover. They kept looking for Jesus as they stood in the temple courts, and they all asked one another, What do you think? Isn't he coming to the festival at all? But the chief priests and Pharisees had given order to him, given orders that anyone who found out where Jesus was should report it that they might arrest him. For the last few months as we've been going through this, I said that Jesus' ministry has kind of a Passover shape to it. Uh, There was... I think it was probably back in the fall when we were a few chapters back. And, and Jesus is in Jerusalem during the Festival of Booths. And he's, he's healing somebody. And, and people are saying, you know, his brothers are like, you know, this is the time to take this thing public. Let's go great. And, and Jesus said, my time has not come. And what I told you back then was that Jesus, his ministry doesn't have a a festival of booths shape. It has a Passover shape. Jesus comes to all these festivals that, that commemorate uh, God's history in, in, in the Jewish people, but ultimately his ministry is going to be fulfilled during Passover week. And we see that this is one of the big themes of the Gospel of John. If you go all the way back to John chapter 1, John the Baptist, when he sees Jesus coming, he says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So Jesus, in a sense, will be the Passover Lamb Uh, that that takes away the sins of the whole world. Just the same way at Passover, God delivered the Jewish people from from, uh, Egypt, from slavery. Jesus would be that same miracle that liberates not just the Jewish people, but everybody. And so we see this really coming into focus here. What's it say at the end of this passage? It's the week before Passover. People are getting ready for it, and everybody's starting to look around. Is Jesus coming to this thing? (laughs) And so there's kind of this... This expectancy that Jesus is going to show up and do something amazing during Passover. And then there's also this kind of uh, anxiety because the Pharisees, uh, you know, they put up wanted posters everywhere. They said, this guy, he, if anybody sees him, you tell us because we got to arrest him. So the primary question that kind of frames this passage today is, what do we do with Jesus? What do we do with this Jesus? You know, it's, it's interesting That in Jesus' whole ministry up to this point, he's never once advocated the violent overthrow of the Romans. He's never once told his followers to pick up swords and to fight. Even when he's been accused by people, he hasn't fought back. Jesus' only crimes up to this point are healing people on the Sabbath, 
teaching forgiveness, <laughs> touching the untouchables, loving the lo- unlovables, hanging out with the wrong kinds of people. That's his only crimes. And yet, what he's doing is so subversive that it threatens the very power structures of the world at that time. What do we do with this Jesus? That's the question of the religious council. If this Jesus keeps healing people, everybody's going to start following him. And if everybody starts following him, Rome is going to get mad. Now, let, I'll, I'll tell you a little bit of the, the, the history right now. We won't go too deep into it, but... But Rome had been dominating that region for about 100 years at this time. And Rome had kind of put up with the Jewish people's religion. They let them have their temple, even though the Romans thought, why would you have a temple and not put any idols in it? That doesn't make sense. It didn't make sense to the Romans. But they, let, they tolerated the Jewish people's religion, and they let them worship and have their festivals. But you don't make Rome mad. Because when you make Rome mad, they will make an example of you in a very public, brutal, violent way. I, I, I shared something about this back, at, uh, back in December. But in 6 AD, when Jesus would have been a teenager, there was a village called Sephorus. Uh, also, it was kind of known as uh, Emmaus. And this was a town of 3,000 people, and there was a revolt in this town against the Romans. And you know what the Romans did? They crucified 2,000 people, men, women, and children, on crosses. I mean, the, the town of Abita that I live in, it ain't even 2,000 people. They, they crucified 2,000 people, and the historians say that, that there are accounts that at that time you could hear the screams from 30 miles away. And you know what? Jesus was a teenager growing up three and a half miles from there in Nazareth. Jesus knew about the brutality of Rome. Everybody did. And the whole reason that Romans in, invented the cross... You know, they, you could kill people any kind of way, but a cross was, was particularly horrifying because you, you would hang somebody up on it and it would take them sometimes days to totally die. And then they'd leave them up there on that cross as kind of a billboard. This is brought to you by Rome. Mess with us and this will be coming to you. So... The Jewish leaders, the, the religious leaders, they had felt threatened by Jesus for quite some time because he seemed to be, you know, getting in fights with them about religion, you know, calling them out on hypocrisy. But now they don't just feel threatened that Jesus is the new church that moved down the block and has taken their members or something. Now they feel like Jesus is actually a threat to their whole nation. If Jesus keeps on going like this, Rome is going to see him as a threat. And if Rome sees him as a threat, Rome is going to squash our nation. Rome is going to destroy our temple, and we're going to be back to where we were. See, most people hated Rome, but at least Rome tolerated them. And the religious elite in in Jerusalem, they had at least established a place of prominence by kind of pacifying Rome and walking the middle ground to compromise. And so they really didn't want anything to mess up. And so it's in this that we see that the Caiaphas, uh, the, the high priest, says, you do not realize that it is better for you that one man die for all the people than that the whole nation perish. 
And he did not say this on his own, but as high priest that year, he prophesied for Jesus would die for the Jewish nation, and not only for that nation, but for the scattered children of God, bringing them together and making them one. So from that day, they plotted to end his life. So, so the writer of John is telling us that, that Caiaphas, he doesn't even know he's prophesying. He's just saying it's better that, they, that we just kill Jesus instead of the whole nation dying. You know, if we don't kill Jesus, Rome's liable to kill us all. But if we kill Jesus, one guy dies and we're all spared. But John actually tells us that, no, he was actually speaking a prophetic word. He was speaking on behalf of God that Jesus would die for the whole nation. Not just the whole nation, but for the whole world. He would be the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. Jesus will let the cross unleash the promise made to Abraham. You know, before there was a nation of Israel, there was this guy named Abraham. Father Abraham had many sons. <laughs> and God tells Abraham, I want you to follow me, and I'm going to bless you. And all of the, what I'm going to be doing with you is going to glo go global. Uh, you, I'm going to bless all the nations of the world through your seed. Now, up to this point... The blessing of Abraham for all the nations of the world had not happened. But in Jesus Christ, that covenant, to, that promise made to Abraham would be opened up to everybody. At the cross, Jesus is going to face the worst that the world can throw at him. The evil, violence, and brutality. The worst that humanity has to offer. The worst of our sin. The worst of our corruption. And in doing so, Jesus is going to overthrow it. But we're going to see that, that at the end of the, the Gospel of John, the end of every Gospel, we can see that, that in facing the worst, even death itself, God vindicates Jesus by raising him from the dead. The question I want us to ask this morning, you know, <laughs> is can we trust Jesus with our lives? Can we follow him in his ways in a world that is objectifying, exploitive, and power-hungry? Can we trust that his way is the true path to freedom and life? I have to be honest, looking over this, you know, this is one of those passages we're going through the Gospel of John, and I'm like, okay, God, I, it, it's hard to imagine reading this as a devotional passage. I mean, there's no, like, direct counsel, like, live your life this way. It's kind of just a story. But today, I just want to look at this, this one aspect, because as I've meditated on this passage this week, one thing that really stands out to me, the subversive ministry of Jesus Christ. The way Jesus Christ, in forgiving, in humility, in love, in touching the untouchables, in loving the unlovables, in doing that, he subverts the powers of this world. He threatens them. He threatens their foundation. We see in Jesus Christ that there's something more powerful than brute force and violence and domination and control and manipulation and propaganda. There's something more powerful than that. It's forgiveness. It's love. It's peace. We see that in Christ Jesus. And today, I just want to look at a couple of things 
I haven't really drawn them out of the passage, but, but just some things that I see in the ministry of Jesus. Because if we are going to be followers of Jesus, if we're going to really attempt to follow his ways, we're going to face resistance. We will face sometimes even persecution. Now, I, we, we look around America. I don't think anybody thinks of Christians being persecuted much in America. You know, we think persecution happens in places like China and you know, maybe parts of Africa and stuff. But America, you know, we're free. We're a Christian nation. That's the way a lot of people think. But I will tell you this. I think one reason Christians aren't persecuted much because a lot of us don't really follow the ways of Jesus. I mean, we, we believe in them. We give mental assent to the ways of Jesus. But really? Do we really have to do this forgiveness stuff? Do we really have to do this loving our enemy stuff? Really? I'm telling you, you take these weak ways of Jesus. I say weak with quotation marks. Or, yeah, those things. You take these weak ways of Jesus, and they will be a threat if you start living them. They will be a threat to the power structures around you. You start living the ways of Jesus on your job, it's going to threaten <laughs> certain things around you. You start living this way in politics, it's going to start threatening political structures around you. I mean, Jesus was doing nothing that seems scandalous. He's just healing people, doing good things. And he was a threat to the very systems of power in his world. So I want to ask a couple of, of questions of what this looks like. Oh, by the way, John 15, 18 through 19, this is, we'll get there in a few months probably, um, says, <laughs> Jesus says, if the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, then the world would love you as its own, but because you were not of the world and I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Now, I have to say, I have been persecuted as a Christian many times, but most of the times it was just for being a jerk. <laughs> I think there's a lot of people who think they're getting persecuted for Christ and they're just being persecuted for being arrogant. I can't really say the word that I'm thinking. I said it one time in a message and I got lots of, was at another church and it didn't go well. <laughs> Sometimes we think by just being belligerent with our views on morality that, and, and when people kick back at us that, oh, I'm just being persecuted for Jesus. No, you're being persecuted for being a jerk. If you really live the ways of Jesus, though, it's going to put you in conflict with some people. It's not always going to be smooth. Some people are going to hate you because you do that. So I want to look at a few aspects. What does it mean to live the ways of Jesus on your job? See, the truth is, you can, whatever business you're in, whether you're in a business that sells stuff, or a business that makes stuff, or a business that makes stuff that people sell, or whatever, you can do your business in a way that objectifies people. You can look at people as, as, as objects, as a means to your end. And so when you see them, you see dollar signs. You can look at your coworkers as people that you need to step on to, to move up the corporate ladder. 
you can elevate the bottom line of, of your business above people created in the image of God. You can do that. That's the way of our world. They, that, that's just the way that everybody expects things to work. Or you can endeavor to follow the ways of Jesus. And if you follow the ways of Jesus, it may mean sometimes that your bottom line suffers. If you truly value people as created in the image of God, and you're truly looking out for their best interests, sometimes it may hurt your bottom line. Sometimes if we're living the way of Jesus with our coworkers, maybe, maybe you're in a job where you're a boss. You get to boss people around. You can treat them as, as objects. You can treat them as, as, you know, just people that are cogs in a machine. Or you can value them as people created in the image of God. One thing we've seen in the ministry of Jesus is he sees people. He loves people. Not for what they can do for him, just because they exist. What does it mean for us in our, in our, in our vocations to live like Jesus? Another aspect is... Um, an us versus them mentality. I think in our world today, one of the things that, that is, is, uh, is just evidence of, of just the, the fallenness of our world is the division in our world. The us versus them thing. It's everywhere. There's no shortage of, of material that wants to fuel the fire and appeal to our own self-righteousness, our own sense of morality, our own sense of goodness, and push us towards an us-versus-them mentality. There's blogs, there's editorials, there's talk radio, there's Facebook posts, there's Twitter feeds. Everything is pushing us to uh, define ourselves over and against other people. And so we point our fingers, we say, they're the problems. The ones who want big government. Or the ones who want big business. Or the ones who want less regulation. Or the ones who want to redistribute the wealth. They're the problem. Or the ones who want to take away our guns. Don't go there. Or it's the fault of the Muslims. Or the gays. Or the Tea Party. Or the Green Party. Whenever we enter into these things, they exist everywhere in our world. But whenever we begin jumping into these things and defining ourselves over and against other people and looking down on them, other people who don't agree with us, guess what? You are stepping out of the grace of God. Why? Because you're saying, I've got it together and you need to be enlightened. We are forgetting that it wasn't because we were so amazing that Jesus died for us. You know, Jesus didn't die for us because we had it all together. Because we're so brilliant and talented. And, and we, you know, we deserve it. It was when we were sinners. When we hated what God stood for. When we had no hope that Jesus Christ died for us. He extended grace to us. To extend grace to other people, to not find ourselves in these things where we're just stepping into the divisions of this world, but to step into the midst of this and be peacemakers and reveal Jesus is to embody the grace of God, to extend the grace of God, to show God's grace to other people. You know what? God loves Muslims, 
Buddhists, Christians, NRA people, gays, Tea Party, Green Party. He loves them all. They're all his kids. And for us to step in the midst of this and to, 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 to side with the judgment in this world and to further it is to, to stop revealing what the grace of God is. We stand in the midst of this stuff and we reveal Jesus. You know, that's what Jesus did, right? He, he caught a lot of flack for it. He, he ate dinner with the wrong kinds of people. He ate dinner. I'm going to talk about that in a few weeks. I'm doing some messages on eating. <laughs> but Jesus sat down. It was scandalous. It was scandalous. It offended all the religious people. Like he's eating with tax collectors and prostitutes. He's, he's touching lepers. That's against the law. Hanging out with Samaritans, fishermen. Jesus even ate dinner with people who hated him. Even religious people that were looking down on Jesus, he ate dinner with them. If we're going to be his followers, it may mean hanging around some of the wrong people sometimes. You know what Jesus did? He told these people he's sitting at dinner with, the kingdom of God, it's near you. You think you're far away from God. You think you're separated. You're thinking that, that there's, there, there's no way this God in heaven could accept you. You're damaged goods. And I'm here to tell you, I'm God incarnate, breaking bread with you, touching you to tell you that the kingdom of God is here and you can get in on it. What would it mean for us as Christians to be like that? Now, let me tell you, if you follow this path of Jesus, you're going to catch some flack. The last one that I want to mention today is forgiveness. I think probably the, the, one of the biggest identifiers of the ministry of Jesus is forgiveness. We sang about it this morning. To follow Jesus is to seek to forgive folks when we are wronged. And I have to say that this is probably the most difficult part of following Jesus. I wish he'd left this part out. Because it's personal, Right? You may be able to get that other stuff down a little bit. Okay, I'll hang out with some people that have different views than me. I'll love them. But forgive people? That's hard. Before I get into forgiveness, I want to say this. That forgiveness is not ignoring the, th the wrongs that have been done to you. Ignoring and suppressing pain and hurt is not what God's asking us to do. And that won't do you any good. The path of Jesus is not simply soldiering on when we're hurt, but confronting hurt with the very forgiveness of God. Forgiveness says, you wronged me. You hurt me. You sinned against me. You owe me. But I am going to cancel the debt. What you did was wrong, and I'm not denying that. You know, Jesus didn't deny the wrongs that we did to him, but he forgave us. I tell you, forgiveness, sometimes it is a very long process. There have been people that have hurt me, and it took me years to forgive them. It, every morning I go to pray, God, please take this away. Help me to forgive. I don't feel like it. Help me to let this person go. But it's the path of Jesus. It is the path of Jesus. 
You know, I haven't met anybody in the later years of their life that has said to me, I wish I wouldn't have forgiven so many people in my life. Have you? Really wish I wouldn't have let them off the hook. But I have met plenty, plenty of people who are filled with bitterness and anger and contempt, contempt, and their world has become narrowed and small and dark, and they're alienated because they haven't extended forgiveness. You know, we look around at the stuff that's going on in our world today, whether the Middle East, uh, I mean, just there, there are battles everywhere. And when there's not a battle, we just invent them. You know, we got to have a battle all the time to fight. But so many of the wars going on in our world today, they go back years, sometimes hundreds of years, and nothing has broken the cycle. What forgiveness does is it breaks the cycle of retribution. It's not eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. It's not karma. <laughs> It's, I forgive you. It ends here. It stops here. Whenever we don't forgive someone, we turn our nose up at the forgiveness that Jesus Christ has extended to us. Whenever, whenever we refuse to forgive people, we're saying... God, I'm, I'm turning my nose up at your forgiveness. Again, kind of like the other things, we, we're becoming proud and arrogant and, and, and we're forgetting what we've been forgiven. You know, Jesus has forgiven you and me for everything we've ever done, everything we ever will do. Every time you have objectified people, every outburst of anger that you've done, Every word of evil that you've spoken against other people. Anything you've stolen. Any, any, any relational. He has forgiven you every bit of it. And he asks you to live in that forgiveness and extend it to those around you. Today, I just want to conclude this passage uh, with a little meditation on Jesus here, some of his words uh, from Matthew. And I put it on uh, your bulletin there. And I just want to tell you, this week, you know, maybe you don't read the Bible much. This would be a great thing to read this week. Start off your day reading this. Read it before you go to bed at night. Let these words reorientate your life on how, how you can live the ways of Jesus on your job, with your family, with your neighbors, your co-workers. That we can be people who embody forgiveness, who embody grace, who embody love. Listen to these words. This is Matthew 5, 3 through 16. This is from the Message Translation. You're blessed when you are at the end of, the, of your rope. With less of you, there is more of God and His rule. You're blessed when you feel like you've lost what is most dear to you. Only then can you be embraced by the one most dear to you. 
You're blessed when you're content with just who you are. No more, no less. That's the moment you find yourselves proud, proud owners of everything that can't be bought. You're blessed when you've worked up a good appetite for God. He's food and drink and the best meal you'll ever eat. You're blessed when you care. At the moment of being careful, you'll find yourselves cared for. You're blessed when you get your inside world, your mind and your heart put right. Then you can see God in the outside world. You're blessed when you can show people how to cooperate instead of compete or fight. That's when you'll discover who you really are and your place in God's family. You're blessed when your commitment to God provokes persecution. The persecution drives you even deeper into God's kingdom. Not only that, count yourselves blessed every time you put down or throw out. Every time people put you down or throw you out or speak lies about you to discredit me. What it means is that the truth is too close for comfort and they are uncomfortable. You can be glad when that happens. Give a cheer even. For though they don't like it, I do. And all heaven applauds. And know that you are in good company. My prophets and witnesses have always gotten into this kind of trouble. Let me tell you why you are here. You were here to be salt seasoning that will bring out the God flavors of this earth. If you lose your saltiness, how will people taste godliness? You've lost your usefulness and will end up in the garbage. Here's another way to put it. You're here to be light, bringing out the God colors in the world. God isn't a secret to be kept. We're going public with this, as public as a city on a hill. And if I make you light bearers, you don't think I'm going to hide you under a bucket, do you? No, I'm putting you on a light stand. And now that I've put you here on a hilltop on a light stand, shine. Keep open house. Be generous with, it, with your lives. By opening up to others, you'll prompt people to open up with God, this generous Father in heaven. Isn't that good? Why don't you stand? I'm going to close this with a word of prayers. Lord, we thank you for, this, for your word this morning. Jesus, we pray that, that your words will cause us to live in your reality this week. Help us to be peacemakers, Lord. Help us to be people who love the unlovely. Help us to be bearers of your grace. Help us to, to stay poor in spirit, to realize that apart from you, we got nothing, Lord. Help us to live in your reality, in your kingdom, even if it threatens the power structures around us. We thank you, Lord, that you overcome evil with good. Help us to do the same, God.